0: Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.
1: Each week at the start of our service, we begin with these words. We mean it when we say that every part of you is welcome. Every part is welcome. Every part. In this phrase, we mean to express our community's value of integration. About integration, we write, Jesus was present to every person and every moment, from the innocent to the unnoticed, from the wilderness to the cross. He knew that even the outcast, even shadows, have a place. We, therefore, value embracing every person and engaging every moment, trusting that everything belongs. Everything belongs, every part. Now, from week to week, when I say these words, or Mike says these words, often I see someone in the room take a deep breath and then relax a little bit, shoulders drop down, tension eases, because I think we can all think of parts of ourselves that have not been welcomed. These parts that have been needed to be managed or disguised or denied in order to belong, especially in communities of faith. Now, some of these parts that are now finding welcome are parts that we see as good, right? Our sexuality, our gender, our personality, our questions and our doubts, which maybe before had to be hidden but wrongly. And it is good. It is so good for us to find welcome for those parts of us. But then, there are other parts. Parts that need to be welcomed, parts that need to be integrated into our stories for us to be whole. But the trouble is, these are the parts that we don't see as good. The shadows, the failures, the disappointments. We don't really want them to be part of our story. And yet, there they are, waiting to be welcomed to belong. This Lent, we are exploring together these stories of disappointment in the life of Moses, abandonment, inadequacy, failures of outcomes, failures of people, even our disappointment in God. And these disappointments are so familiar to us. They're the shadows of our stories And so often, if we allow them into our stories at all, it's only as a little blip, right? It's just a little detour, a temporary moment before we got our lives back on track, right? But part of my hope for this story, this series, is that we can allow even these disappointments to belong in our stories, to pause and to listen to them and to see what gifts these shadows might bring us. Last week, we explored Moses' experience of abandonment, which we saw cultivated in his heart, this compassion, this capacity to hear the cries and the groans of his people. And so it comes to pass that one day, seeing an Egyptian beating one of the Hebrew slaves, Moses intervenes and he kills the Egyptian in the process. He tries to cover up the crime, but the next day, Moses again goes out, and he sees two Hebrews fighting, and again, he tries to intervene between them. And one says to him, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses realizes that his crime is known and that he's in danger, and he flees into the wilderness where he becomes a shepherd. And decades and decades go by. You have to wonder, how many nights did Moses lie awake somewhere out there, remote, alone with sheep and rock and sand and stars and just circle over and over in his mind that failure? He had tried to help his people and he had failed. They had rejected and disapproved of him. How many times did he wonder if he could have really helped if he had been better he'd been different, maybe more eloquent and less hot-headed, how he'd squandered all of his position and his education and the privilege that he had from growing up in Pharaoh's household. I mean, it's not really hard to imagine those dark nights because we've all had nights like this, right? Or we lie awake and we think about our failures, what might have been if we'd just been a little better, been a little more. Decades pass, and Moses finds himself suddenly addressed by the divine in the form of a burning bush, this divine that calls themselves Yahweh, Lord, the God of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel. And this Lord tells Moses... I've observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. And here God's heart is lining up with the heart we saw in Moses, this heart that had compassion for the groaning of his people. And who will God send to deliver them? Moses. Now, in Moses' response, you can hear, I think, the echo of all of those nights of self-castigation. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Send someone else. Lord, I am not enough. I am inadequate. Inadequate. From the thesaurus. Here we go. Incompetent. Incapable. Unsatisfactory. Not good enough. No good. Found wanting. Not up to scratch. Lacking. Leaving much to be desired. Unfit. (sighs) I mean, can't you just feel that? I think one of the reasons Moses' story has carried so much weight across the millennia is that we all know the disappointment of our own feelings of inadequacy. We've all tasted moments where we feel not good enough, not up to scratch, lacking, leaving much to be desired. Now, sometimes we have good humor about this, uh, like when we're, we're not enough, but it doesn't really touch our core identity. It's not really who we are. We're just not good enough in a certain space. When I was in high school, I got really into musical theater. And uh, I I love to sing. I'm good at singing. But unfortunately, I just cannot dance. It's just not a a thing I can do. And so when we did West Side Story and I auditioned, I was surprised to be cast at all. And I was cast as a nameless background member of the Jets, right? And during the big Jets dance number, cool, you know, da 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 right? Uh, The choreographer had me Snap off stage <laughs> literally and then i went to a, a microphone that was backstage and i was a backup snapper for the dancers because it's hard to do all that choreography and snap at the same time now that's just funny right it doesn't bother me because i wasn't up to scratch but i knew it and i could live with it i didn't need to be a dancer but so much of our experience of inadequacy is not funny it's painful Right? We, we find that there's a weak spot in our character that just lines up in this way that causes our friends or our spouse or our kids disappointment and pain. We swing big for a dream job and we discover that we're just unqualified. We really give it our all, but we don't make the team. We don't make the grade. We don't get the relationship. We don't get the promotion. And sometimes we bounce back and we try again, but sometimes we just stop and we just feel, just feel, what is wrong with me? I'm not enough, right? And maybe later the opportunity comes again, but we just shake our our heads. We've been burned before. Lord, just send someone else. Because how can we handle coming face to face again with our inadequacy? It's too painful. Send someone else. I can't help but hear resonances here in this story of another earlier story, another conversation between humanity and God. God walking in the cool of the garden looking for Adam and Eve. Why are you hiding? Because we were naked and afraid. Who told you you were naked? Now, I think this question, who told you you were naked, is, is about more than the literal state of the human's wardrobe. I think it's about shame. Feeling naked means what we are is not good, not enough. We need to hide. And I wonder if in our experiences of inadequacy, God might not, might not be asking us, who told you that you were naked? Who told you You weren't enough. When I think about inadequacy, I have this image that comes to my mind. This uh, this past October, Gary, my husband, and I had the chance to visit Florence in Italy on our honeymoon. And as one of the centers of Renaissance culture and art, there is just priceless history as well as lines of tourists everywhere in Florence. Anywhere you go, oh, this painting changed art forever. This building changed architecture forever. But nowhere are the lines longer than at the Accademia, Academ- I can't say that, Academia, whatever. It's Italian. The home of Michelangelo's David, the singular most famous statue in the world. Now, I have to tell you, I thought I knew this statue, right? You see it everywhere, in posters and pictures and movies. But when you get into the gallery, finally you make your way through all the security and whatever, you get into the gallery, and then you turn a corner, and there, at the end of the hallway, is David. And I just don't really, honestly, the pictures don't, they just don't do it justice. Like, I don't know how to communicate this experience. You really do just have to be there. It is... Stunning. It's enormous. It's perfect. And you walk up slowly and you get through the crowds taking selfies and you just take it in. It's breathtaking. Now, after some time with David, you might turn back and you notice that there are sculptures that line that hallway. You've just walked through a hallway to get to David, but behind you along this hallway are these other sculptures. They're hard to notice at first because David is just kind of all-consuming as you get in there. But as you turn back, you see there's a set of unfinished works called the Prisoners. And they're so named because they remain trapped in the stone never released. They're these unfinished, rough-hewn works. A face or a torso emerges, but, but nothing like the David. Found wanting, not up to scratch, lacking, leaving much to be desired. You stand in that hallway and you look at these and you look at that. To me, that is what inadequacy feels like. Stuck in the rock, not fully formed, but, but they are just there. You, clap, you catch a glimpse of what you could have been, what you should have been if you'd just been more, more attractive, more intelligent, more competent, more mature, more educated, more witty, more patient, more put together. I mean, you can picture it, can't you? That ideal, that perfect, that could have been you. And instead, here we are, prisoners in the hall. Stuck with ourselves, feeling unfinished, unformed, and comparing ourselves to an ideal we couldn't possibly live up to, ashamed and hiding. And the call of God might come, but we just shake our, set, our head sadly and say, oh Lord, please send someone else. Now this common human experience of inadequacy often does come from comparison, right? Comparing ourselves either to others who excel where we struggle or by comparing ourselves to an imaginary ideal that we believe would be better suited to the the situation at hand. And in fact, this comparative imagination can be so hard on ourselves that we can perceive inadequacy where it doesn't exist. Uh, Susan Imes, Ph.D., and Pauline Rose Clance, Ph.D., first wrote in 1978 about what we call imposter syndrome. Uh, The National Institutes of Health describes that as a behavioral health phenomenon described as self-doubt of intellect, skills, or accomplishment among high-achieving individuals. These individuals cannot internalize their success and subsequently experience pervasive feelings of self-doubt, anxiety, depression, and or apprehension of being exposed as a fraud in their work, despite verifiable and objective evidence of their successfulness. Now, while early studies located these struggles primarily in women in the workplace and marginalized groups, further research has shown that imposter syndrome can be found widely among working populations, regardless of gender, race, class, or education level. So in some cases, our perceived sense of inadequacy is projected onto us, either by a culture that is demanding unrealistic performance from us or by this internalized comparison by which we convince ourselves that we are not enough. In an article from the American Psychological Association, the primary suggestion for addressing imposter syndrome is that we share those feelings, that we share our failures With others who have been where we are because to share that experience and have it validated someone says oh uh, that's that's not just you I've been there I've struggled with that also that's that is really hard you're on the right track that can ground us and help us to put that impossible comparison to rest now, it's important to name imposter syndrome when we talk about inadequacy because we do struggle with comparing ourselves against these impossible demands. But I do want to push a little farther here into a space that is a little more uncomfortable, but I think it's really important. Because, of course, as humans, we are finite. We have limits and we have limitations. And there are times when our perception of inadequacy really does stem from a limit within us, a real limitation. We're not always enough. We can't always be enough. We're not always the right fit for everything, even if we'd like to be. It just is the case that we've got certain strengths and certain weaknesses, and some things we'd really love to be capable of just remain beyond us, and just maybe always will. And if every part of us belongs, if every part belongs, then might not our limitations belong as well? Might not our shortcomings and our failures and our weaknesses be a vital part of the story that we are telling with our lives? I mean, think of Moses here. He had a long time to reflect on his attempt at helping his people, a long time to reflect on his failures. Maybe it was just really honest for him to say, I... I'm not sure I'm up to this. I don't know if I would really be good in this role. And in fact, might it not be his very awareness of his limitations that is crucial for him to be able to engage the role that the divine is setting before him? See, that, I think, is the really interesting question for us when we encounter our limitations might it not be our very awareness of those limitations that is crucial for us to be able to engage in what's before us? Our tendency when we run up against our shortcomings is to either A, try to disregard, diminish, or deny them, or B, to see them as barriers which prevent us from getting where we'd really like to go. But what if it's actually the limitations that are crucial for getting us where we need to go? What if, in fact, it is only by listening to, welcoming, and paying attention to our struggles, our failures, our liabilities, that we can really enter into the beauty of our unique, unrepeatable lives? You see, there's a word for embracing our limitations, welcoming them into our story and letting them shape us. Humility. Now, humility might be the most misunderstood of the virtues. For most of us, humility means something like passivity or self-abasement. Oh, no, no, I don't deserve it. I'm not good. No, I'm just a worm, (laughs) right? But humility is nothing like this. The real word, the word humility comes from humus, soil. Human does as well. Human, humus, humility. The word humility speaks of being grounded. Standing right where we are, being just who we are, without needing to be anyone else. The Benedictine monk Michael Casey describes humility this way. Those who are humble experience no shame. They don't need lies and evasions to inflate their importance in the eyes of their associates or to buttress their self-esteem. The humble are equally content with both the gifts and the limitations that come from their nature or personal history. Humility is the opposite of any kind of artificiality, role-playing, good manners, or seemliness. Humility sets aside the mask. It's a kind of nakedness that allows us to be seen transparently in all our imperfection and vulnerability. Humility is a kind of nakedness. Who told you you were naked? That's a question about hiding, about the shame of being who we are. But humility is the ability, again, to be naked. To be just exactly who we are, without any shame. Interestingly, this is how the Hebrew Scriptures describe Moses. The Moses who names his weakness, his limitations honestly before the divine. Numbers 12.3, now the man Moses was very humble, more so than anyone on the face of the earth. Why does humility matter? Why is it so important to embrace our limitations and our failures? Because our limits provide us the openings where we are made to break open and offer our lives as gift. Have you ever asked someone to teach you a skill that they're just a natural at, right? It came so easy. They've got a knack for singing or dance. They're an effortless athlete. It just comes easy to them. Have you noticed that these people are just the worst at teaching it, right? You ask and they're like, just, you just do it. They can't help you when you struggle because it wasn't a struggle for them. I once asked a friend, a really a great athlete, to teach me. We were, we were getting into frisbee golf. Uh, or I was trying to get into frisbee golf, you know, because of the guys, right? And so uh, I asked him to teach me to throw a frisbee. He couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He just kept saying the same thing over and over. The thing he said, this isn't in my notes, the thing he said was across the nipples, <laughs> which I found both unhelpful and uncomfortable. Just over and over. It didn't... Okay, so right? It just didn't help me. He couldn't, and he couldn't understand why that wouldn't help me. No, the person that you want to teach you is a person who struggled. Because when you fail, they know exactly why. They've been there. They know how to help because they needed help. It's the same for parents. It's the same for therapists. It's the same for managers. And yes, for pastors. The very place of limit and struggle... Becomes the gift. Henry David Thoreau described this like a dog gnawing on a bone. He wrote, Know your own bone. Gnaw at it, bury it, unearth it, and gnaw at it still. See, whatever areas of life you find particularly challenging, those are the places that you will have a lot to say. They're your bone. We have to gnaw at it, bury it, wait, let it heal a while, come back for another pass. But eventually, that very inadequacy can become a well of goodness springing up. Precisely because it slowed you down, it made you ponder, it made you weep, it made you open. It made you learn. See, that's that's humility. Not weakness, not denying your strengths, just owning yourself your gifts, and your limitations both with no need to pretend. And like Moses, if we welcome and embrace our limits, we too become humble and good for others. You see, our weaknesses and our failures aren't inadequacy. If we believe like the prisoners in the halls of the academia that we were meant to be the David, well, <laughs> if we believe our lives were supposed to have been graceful perfection, then we're going to really feel inadequate. But look at these prisoners with me one last time. And now David they are not, but aren't they beautiful in their own way? Aren't they evocative? Because they're they're like me. They're like you unfinished work in progress, but evocative, beautiful gifts in, not in spite of their incompleteness, but because of it. Pearl Church, may you like beloved stones, unfinished and limited in just the right ways, know your bone. May you gnaw at it. May you bury it. May you unearth it and gnaw it again May your very limitations become the source of your unique, unrepeatable, beautiful contributions to this world. May you find humility as you own the precise texture of your history and your personality and your situation as exactly the person that God is inviting to share themselves with the world. Let's pray. God, may we own ourselves. May we own our bones. And as we gnaw at them and as they pull us open and as we weep and as we struggle, may we learn, may we grow, and may those very places become gift. Gift that we can offer to others. Gift that changes the world.